Well, welcome, everybody. I'm Frank Sesno. I'm a faculty member here at the School of Media and Public Affairs. I'm also the director of something called the Public Affairs Project, which brings me to this stage with some regularity for a series of conversations. And today, I'm very, very pleased to be joining with Steve Hesse, who's also a faculty member at GW. Uh, he's a uh, senior fellow at Brookings. Is that correct title? What's the, what's the actual title? Senior Fellow Emeritus. Senior Fellow Emeritus. So he's really oh distinguished. So really old. <laughs> and I asked the other day what administration he start, first started working in, and he said... Did I tell the truth? You, well, I don't know. <laughs> it wasn't Lincoln or anything You didn't like say that. Teddy Roosevelt. No, no. I didn't. Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower. So in terms of depth of experience and breadth of perspective, there, is, there are very few people in fact, maybe no one in Washington who brings what Steve Hess brings to the table, which is why you see him on television and in print, and now uh, in his latest publication called What Do We Do Now?, which is an apt question for he or she who wins the White House in this particular case, he. We're joined here on stage by several um, very distinguished Americans who uh, know of what they speak today as we talk about the transition from the perspective of the cabinet, what it takes to put a new cabinet in place. And these are, after all, people who get the work done. And to the extent that a president is judged by the company he keeps and by the good people he brings in, uh, this is, uh, in many ways, the first litmus test. Barbara Franklin, Barbara Hackman Franklin, is the president chief uh, executive officer of Barbara Franklin Enterprises. And she served as the 29th Secretary of Commerce under President George Herbert Walker Bush. So welcome to you. Thanks for being here. And then we are joined by Ann Veneman to my right, someone I have worked with and gotten to know quite well over the years, and I'm pleased to say has come jo uh, uh, to join us from New York, where she currently serves as Executive Director of the United Nations Children's Fund, Children's Fund and in fact was gracious enough just yesterday to join uh, me on a radio program I was substituting for Diane Rehm, and she was talking about the incredible humanitarian challenges and some of the issues that the UNICEF is tracking with respect to children and child uh, soldiers uh, in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo and some very disturbing things. But Anne, thanks very much for, for being here. And finally, Bill Brock, who's told me not to refer to him as William E. Brock, but Bill Brock will do. Um, Bill Brock uh, has a great, great um, imprint and uh, range of experience here in Washington. He's currently the founder and senior partner of the Brock Group, which is a Washington, D.C. consulting firm specializing in international trade, investment, and human resource and labor management issues. He was, in fact, the Secretary of Labor uh, during uh, the years 1985 to 1987 under Ronald Reagan. Uh, he's done a number of other things, including served as uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, U.S. Trade Representative. That was from 81 to 85, when he first came in, yeah. 85. So all were in the transition phases of your respective terms in one form or another. Steve, um, maybe you want to tee up this conversation a little bit in terms of taking us into what is at stake and how we want to launch this conversation with respect to transitioning the cabinet. Right. Well, <clears throat> Tuesday, we were involved in the White House with participants in the White House. Thursday, we turned to the cabinet and all of, on our stage have been cabinet Officers, three different presidents uh, serving three different presidents. Imagine that you uh, you go downtown and you stand in front of these buildings that are a block square, agriculture, labor, commerce, and you look at them and you say, I'm in charge. 
Your budget <laughs> is in the billions. You're going to have to deal with or run, of course, uh, a bureaucracy that you can't hire or fire. Uh, you have a small number of political appointments, uh, some of whom you've appointed, some of whom have been given to you. Uh, you're, you're going to have great negotiation with the White House, who may see eye to eye with you on some things and not on others. You have to deal with the Congress, both your authorizing committees and your appropriating committees. You have special interest groups. You've got to have relations with the Chamber of Commerce, the Farm Bureau, the AFL-CIO. Wow. Uh, and the question is, um, who, who's right for this? Who, what are the skills you need for a job like this? What are the talents you have to have? This is a conversation where the three former cabinet officers, with a little prodding from Frank and I, uh, are, are going to compare notes about this. And I think out of their wisdom, I hope at the very end, we will have a distillate. We will have uh, something that we can pass on to the president-elect of the United States. Of Who do you look for? What type of person? What are the qualities necessary? So that's uh, what I'm looking for in the next hour. And start the question. We, we invited the president-elect, but he was busy. Well, he was. <laughs> so let me see if I got this right. Yeah. So paid, in many cases, a fraction of what you'd actually make in the private sector to take this job. You've got a workforce you inherit, you don't hire. You said you can't fire them? Well, you better find cause. You better find cause. Uh, and you've got to fit in with other cabinet secretaries and with your bosses, plural, at the White House. What's the toughest thing that Barack Obama is going to face in putting his team together? Well, I think... Um He's going to face getting, first of all, competent people. We're in a time of financial difficulty in the country and in the world, and he's got to have people that have the know-how to, to really hit the ground running. So I would say that's number one. Number two, I think he really needs to look at diversity of the cabinet. I think the last few presidents have done very well, and I've already seen articles now comparing um, whether or not he's really going to be able to bring diversity and some criticism of the fact that people being mentioned are not looking like a diverse cabinet. And how so ironic think, is that, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, some are saying because he represents diversity, maybe he doesn't need to show as much diversity in the cabinet, but I think others will challenge that. So I think that's a challenge. And then I think finding people who really can work together and be compatible with each other because there are so many issues within the cabinet that are cross-cutting and which you have to really get some kind of consensus to make recommendations on the administration's position. Bill Brock, how much pressure is there to reward your friends in these jobs? That's huge. Uh, that, that's a big problem. You know, you asked the, well, the first question, what's the toughest challenge? But the toughest challenge to me is hubris. Hubris. You have come out of a campaign in which you just whacked the other side. You are all wise, all smart, and all powerful. Overnight. The temptation to think that you really are that good is huge. <laughs> and the biggest challenge that you come in, that I think they face, is a really urgent need for humility. And if you don't need it, uh, all you got to do is start getting your briefings from the intelligence community, the financial community. You'll find qu quickly uh, that it wasn't so simple. It isn't so simple now as it was during the campaign. You can have a lot of quick answers then. 
The problem with American politics, and I'm sorry to go on so long, I'll stop, is that it's almost impossible to get elected by telling the truth. Uh, it really is. And if you think about if any candidate had gone to the American people and said, we got a crisis in Social Security, we're going to have to increase the retirement age, increase the amount of contributions to Social Security, maybe cut the benefits, uh, how many of you think he'd be elected? All of that's going to happen sooner or later because the system is going to, going to run out of money. Same thing is true with uh, the health system. So taking uh, your win and tempering it with a sense of awe at the responsibility, the challenge of putting together a team of people who really are comfortable with each other, uh, it's an enormously difficult challenge. What do you think? I absolutely agree with everything that's been said and would underscore the hubris problem that I think always accompanies a, a huge win. And I, in my own experience, um, and this would go back to Nixon in 1972 when I was a staffer in that White House, huge win and a, a lot of hubris uh, set in. Uh, that well, was, we know what happened in that. Uh, yeah, well, I, right. I don't want to even get into that. But, and not that hubris was the cause of that, but it was, it was in the mix. In my particular situation, I was, was charged with recruiting women and being the White House point person on the effort to advance women in government. After the election, the hubris had set in, and I was having a very hard time getting at the, the appointments process because there were others who were bigger, smarter, or whatever. And that was, a, that, that was just one little data point. So I echo what's been said about that humility and, and an awe about the job and the fact that, that uh, the people coming in here have to be good, but they are public servants. So how do you do, how do you, in the transition process, which is what's underway now, you've got the hubris quotient, you've got the friends of the winner quotient, right? It was right. friends of Bill, it's friends of W, it's friends of Barack. You've got the payback quotient, right? Yep. John Kerry, look, I put in my time, I want, you know, I want a job. I, how, how does a transition deal with that? Who's responsible for that? Who's in charge of that? <laughs> Somebody who we are not likely to see. The wonderful thing is uh, that we're not hearing very much. Uh, they're in a room someplace in Chicago. Uh, and uh, we outside have to live by what I described last week as the Mies rule, which is uh, those who know uh, don't talk and those who talk don't know. So the rest of us are throwing out names. And I don't think that's a bad idea, as a matter of fact, because we see how people respond to the names we throw out. Uh, but they will start with some sort of grid, which are all of the things we're talking about, including who do you owe? And then we say, who do you owe? But that person hadn't any competence. What do we do with them? We, we owe them. We do owe them. There's no question around it. He worked his heart out for us for years. But we can't make them secretary of A, B, and C. So it's, there, there is a, uh, a brilliance in finding a place for that person. Uh, and there are some places. really good ambassadorships in the Caribbean. In Caribbean. <laughs> yeah. okay. Weather's good, but you got to put them where they can't do any harm. Ah, that's you know, right. and that's that. You know, Battlefield Monuments Commission. There, we all got a list of, of fifty or hundred of these places where you can put somebody. 
that uh, where they can do no let, harm. Let me, let me ask each of you to, mm -hmm. to relay, maybe through anecdote and your own experience, example, uh, what you thought was the hardest part of the transition you experienced. You went into agriculture, for example, at uh, 2001. What was happening? What did you do? What was the toughest part of that? Well, um, I went into agriculture having done the transition out of agriculture eight years before exactly. I was then the deputy secretary of agriculture. We should say you were the first woman secretary of agriculture. Is that not right? And only. Yeah. And only. Okay. <laughs> so you knew where you buried the, all the problems, and now you could dig them up. Right. I, I think that I had the advantage of coming in after having been gone exactly eight years, but staying in touch with the department and knowing who the most senior and competent career people were and being able to go to those people and know that I could get solid answers, solid briefings, and really know what the story was. Some of my colleagues who were coming in at the same time didn't have that background, so I felt very fortunate um, to be able to know who to go to and because we dealt with some very difficult issues coming in. I mean, it was within a week we were having um, the big foot and mouth scare, foot and mouth disease in Europe, all over the, the United Kingdom, and we had to worry about how to get airline passengers in here without spreading it into the U.S. You were this responsible for that. a week on the job. Uh, disease. Animal diseases in agriculture is obviously one of the big responsibilities. So I was working with the Airline Industry Association to figure out how we did checks on people coming in. We were like screening passengers at the airport and so forth. I thought that was mouth, just one of the few yeah. things. I thought foot and mouth was a, an affliction of the Congress. <laughs> well, that's a problem too. <laughs> she wasn't responsible for that. I know. Now you came in at, at, at Labor Secretary. There are some interesting historical parallels because when you came in in 1981, we were in the middle of a very rough economic patch which took us ultimately to 10.8% unemployment. Uh, there were very high interest. I mean, the, some of the circumstances were different, but you came in in the midst of an economic crisis. What transition process would you, you know, cite or recommend to this crowd yeah. as they jump on this moving freight? Well, just to put the timing right, uh, Frank, I, uh, I was national chairman. One of the things that Ann said that's important is and, and, and all three of us had this experience. I had served in Congress and as national chairman. And having been in the town and knowing a lot about how it works is really important because these are, these are jobs where you've got to hit the ground running very fast, very quickly. Um, I was national chairman, and, and the president-elect, Governor Reagan, came in with Ed Meese, actually, uh, to talk about how we were going to uh, do the details for the for the election, uh, I mean for the inauguration, and we were in my office at the national committee and having lunch, and the president-elect said, uh, "Well, Bill, um, would you like to serve in the administration?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "Yes, sir, I really would." He said, "Where would you like to serve?" And I said, "I'd like to be a trade representative." He said, "You would." He said, I thought you'd want to be in the cabinet. I said, well, Mr. President, it is a cabinet job. <laughs> uh, uh, and a lot of people are fairly new to the process in this town, but uh, it had changed under Bob Strauss. Uh, and actually, uh, when I was in the trade job, 
uh, I was hit front on by the economic issue because we had, coming out of Carter, we had 21% interest rates and 12.5% and inflation, and, uh, and people were out of work. We were hurting. And I was getting pressure to put a limit on imports. You know, uh, it was, it was a, a very challenging time. So after you pointed out that that position was in the cabinet, everything yeah. went pretty smoothly and... Yeah, it was it was wonderful because I, I, nobody else wanted the job. I think, but um, but, but we had uh, we well, had a really coherent team coming in with Reagan early. It was that was fun. It's uh, another problem. I mean, here we have just heard from from two already, and Barbara would, would, would agree with this. Uh, you really need experience. You need that knowledge of the hill. You need the previous decision. Now uh, I get a call yesterday, the Associated Press. And they say, well, what's going on? Barack Obama has been campaigning now for a year saying he's bringing in new blood. He's bringing in outsiders. And I look at all of his transition team, and they're all insiders. Now, how can he honor that? What's, the, what's going on? What's going on? How, how do you make the, the match that he promised us of bringing in outsiders, people with fresh blood, new blood, and yet having that knowledge, that experience from having been there in the department or having been there in the Congress? It's not an easy question. Well, somebody needs to sit in the, bottom line is the president, but whoever is working his transition needs to think about that uh, and, and think about the promises that were made. Think about people who you can trust if you're the president to carry out your agenda, not somebody else's agenda or their own agenda and people of competence. We've said all of this, but then it's a, it's a balancing kind of thing, and then you think who, who would really fit best into which department. I think you want people who at least have some understanding uh, at, at, of the mission of, of a given department, if that person's gonna have to run it. And I, I've seen people put into some of those jobs who really didn't have a clue about that. Mm. And that's a, tough, uh, that's a tough learning curve. You should really mm. know something about the substance. So there, there are two things here. Uh, and you also want, want people who can manage. That, yeah. that was the other thing. Besides the yeah. substantive piece, there's a managerial piece, yeah. not necessarily the trade rep job as much, but these cabinet departments, you really do. 36,000 employees plus now at, at Commerce, for example. How many employees did you have? 110,000. Yeah, it's huge. Oh boy. I was the small, I had 16,000. 16, at now, labor. So, so you need That's to terrifying. have managerial yeah. experience, political experience, and right. you need to have s presumably some knowledge of, of the area that you're supposed to be in charge of. Right. right. And yet you take somebody like Elliot Richardson, late Elliot <laughs> Richardson, who was actually the ca uh, uh, department secretary of four different departments. Yeah. Clearly didn't know anything particularly about welfare reform one day and the next about mm -hmm. defense something, and, and, and then... Uh, so does that tell us, first, there's something very special about managing very large enterprises? And something you can learn, maybe large universities or large corporations or something? I don't know. Yes, I think it's the answer. And, and that may be one facet of experience that would be looked at. Here, I, I, I've just got to relate, and I ask you whether this was okay. Bryce Harlow, who Steve knew from the the Eisenhower and Nixon eras, and I knew from Nixon, you all probably knew him too, but 
in terms of management of, of a department, he had the five testicle theory. And what he would say, I asked if it was okay if I said that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, they now voted 18. <laughs> so it's okay. You but won't shock anybody. In this a, no, anybody <laughs> anymore. Well, it, it's, a pretty good, um, it's a pretty good theory if, if you really want to get a hold of the, the department. And his, his thought, the five parts of this are the budget, <laughs> personnel, communications, PR, um, congressional relations, and legal. And that you really needed, if you were the secretary, to have, your, have control of those things so that you really could implement the policy agenda that you were brought in there to do. But if you only have one, what, what would you want? <laughs> I mean, so in other words, there's some things you can farm out, can't you? There's some things more important than others. Some things, you know, now there, and you have been both an assistant secretary, a deputy secretary, and a secretary. What, what, what do you have to do as secretary that you can't farm out to your deputy? The deputy that you can't farm out to your assistant. What has to be at the top and can't be any other place? Well, I think, again, it gets down to the management. And one of the things about the U.S. Department of Agriculture was it is, unbeknownst to most people, one of the most diverse departments in all of government. You run everything from $50 billion worth of food programs like food stamps and school lunch to the U.S. Forest Service to the U.S. farm programs and rural development programs. And so you have to have some idea of how this all fits together because you have undersecretaries that have competence in all of these areas. But then, you know, the secretary and the deputy secretary have to bring it all together. I think one of the ways you address the issues of people coming in that may not have the experience in the department is you put very good people at the top layers of the deputy secretary, some of the undersecretaries, the number two and number three positions who have the real substantive knowledge if you're like Elliot Richardson coming in to HEW at the time. So um, I think there are different ways of handling this, but again, you have to be able to have you know, the vision for the whole department and all of the issues that it covers um, so that you can, you can move ahead and be able to address with the president and the other cabinet members the breadth of issues that you have to bring to the table. Now this is a grasping question. Did you pick your own undersecretaries? Uh, it was a combination effort. Um, I actually had a pretty strong hand in most of them, although some of them I knew I was going to be bringing in, but I got quite a lot of say over which positions they were going to, which undersecretary position they were going to go into. So you were sort of a double veto. The White House had its, if you didn't like the White House's suggestion, you might veto that and vice versa. Is that accurate yeah, or, I think or was it 60-40 or 75-25? I would say it was a collaborative process. Okay. And what's your, what's your recommendation to this White House yeah. as to how collaborative it should be? Should this be the White House call? Well, ultimately it is the White House call. But um, I think if you have somebody that you believe ought to be in the department and coming into your department because they have special knowledge, say if you're in the trade representative's office and you have a special trade person that really knows the issues, you ought to be able to recommend those people to the White House. And I was able, because I knew I'd worked in the area for so long and I knew a lot of the top people in agriculture, 
actually to bring a couple of people to the table that they would not have otherwise probably considered. Bill Brock, I'd like to ask you to weigh in on this. And Steve Hess's book, he's got a nice little chart here on demographic estimates, what, what America looks like. 73.9% white, 14.7% Hispanic, 12.4% African American, 4.3% Asian, 0.7% American Indian. How important do you think it is for Barack Obama's cabinet to look like America? I think it's got to be uh, anything other than a fixed rule. I think diversity, as Anne says, is important. But if, you, if you're putting people in on the basis of that, uh, you'll make a mistake. I want to I go to something Steve said, too. Uh, getting people who run large organizations is usually a mistake. The people that I've seen fail in cabinet positions are CEOs who come in and think they know the world. And they've had a staff saying yes, sir, for the last 15, 20 years, and they don't play the game because this is a different, this is, this is a different world. It is a very different world. You've got only, the, you know, these turkeys in the White House to deal with. You've got uh, the Congress, which gives new meaning to the turkey. Uh, and they, they drive you crazy because everybody's got a pet answer to, to the problem. Um, I was lucky in the labor job because uh, Don, Don Regan kept trying to get me to take labor because the, the incumbent had been under indictment for a year and the place was dysfunctional. And I had a relationship with Lane Kirkland and some other labor leaders. And, uh, and I finally said, okay, Don, one condition. He said, what's that? And I said, I will go as long as I don't ever have to take a call from the White House personnel office. But I will never take somebody because they recommend them. I want my own people that I, can, that I know and trust, that know how to play the game in this town. And I will not hire some precinct chairman from East Orange, from East Orange New Jersey, because they're somebody's brother-in-law. And that you get too much of that in the White House personal show. And what happened? What did Regan say? He said, you have a deal. And he stuck by it. I, the, two or three times I got a call, and I said, no. And they said, you have to. We're the White House. I said, the White House there isn't a person. Uh, and I said, and, and they said, you have to do it. And I said, would you uh, just give me 30 minutes? And I called Don Regan. And I said, you made a, you made a, yeah, he was chief of staff for Regan. And I said, I, I hold you to your word. He said, that's not a problem. I told you I would keep my word, and he did. He called the shot, and they were off my back. Did you have a deal like that, uh, Anne, when you were in? Did you have a deal like that? Well, I think I think <laughs> this is a slight, because you went in after the president was already in office into labor. And I think part of the issue, it's much different when you come in in a brand new administration, and you basically everybody's walked out the door at the top level. So all your undersecretaries are gone, all your, I mean, everybody, I walked in with four people, um, and that's why it was so critical to know the top career people. But when you, you're inheriting a department in midway through the administration, I think it's different. I think you can make that demand. But you walked in with four people, and how many had left? I mean, when you say that the top tier is all gone, what, what order of magnitude are we, are we talking uh, about? We probably had two or three hundred politicals. 
counting all the people in the states. So two or three hundred politicals, they leave. They're gone on Inauguration Day, basically. Mm -hmm. And you had four. Mm -hmm. And how long did it take you to fill that two or three hundred who were gone? Well, I got the, the major people in there, the, the, the undersecretaries um, and the deputy secretary. Probably most of the top-level positions were done by June. By June. So there's a lag. That's pretty of, good. That's pretty good. Oh, but that's pretty good. But the point is, is that you've got this gigantic department dealing with disease and food and contamination and forest fires, forest fires and regulations and all kinds of stuff. And you've got a whole top tier of people. They're gone. And you walk in with four people, and it takes months. And then once they get in, it's going to take them a while longer to figure out where the, where the restroom is speed, and get yeah. up to speed mm -hmm. and start traveling around. So you've got what, probably realistically, six, 10, 12 months delay before you're really good. good. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, well. but keep in mind, you do have very strong, incompetent civil servants running a lot of the organizations. So you have a chief of the Forest Service. Um, that is there, and then so you have. I, I felt that in our department we had a pretty strong level of career people that I could rely on, and I knew where I could go within the department to to uh, trust the judgment. But look how unusual you were in that regard. I, I've I've gone in from the from the White House and met with cabinet people, and they're sure that all these civil servants are against them. If it's a democratic administration, all those civil servants are conservative. It's a, if it's a, uh, uh, and vice versa. And they all say, and we'll be here all when conservative, you're gone. That's right? right. That's right. So it really is, it, it's, it's an amazing thing that you did to under, not under, to, to have a sense of, of the civil service at, at the highest level. You don't know them all, but at the, uh, senior executive service, the GS 15s, the ones who you interact with, understand them and, and not either fear them. Uh, or, or else, if, uh, with SES, you could even get rid of them. That, that's an unusual thing that, that you don't see in every uh, incoming can administration. Can I follow up on that, though, and sure. I ask you to jump in on this? It, I mean, if that's such an unusual thing, as yeah. you said, which it is, and, and let's get real, let's get back to Barack Obama and this transition. We're in the middle of an unbelievable financial right. meltdown, is the only mm -hmm. word that you can, you know, we may have General Motors that goes away in months. I mean, conceivably, it could happen. And we're talking about a transition. We're talking about a lame duck period now, and then a transition period then, and then a get up to speed period beyond that. That's right. How, how do you avoid paralysis? I'm not sure I've ever seen in, in my, if I look at my whole career, a, a situation quite like this while a transition is going on. And uh, another uh, piece here, not only do does the, the president have to select the cabinet, then they've got to be confirmed. Now, hopefully that's going to happen very quickly because the, the, the majority party is the same, but still you, you, you just never know, and that's got to be done, and then the next layers down have do to be confirmed. Well, we don't you, have the luxury of waiting a year for this to get going. We do not. Uh, I don't know that I have a silver bullet answer. What you want is as speedy uh, as possible selection of these people who are coming in, and you want as much cooperation as possible from the folks who are going out. Now, so far, I, I think we have a good signal, certainly on, on that, that th this administration is not going to play games with, with the new one. Excuse me, coming in because we are in such a serious time. But this, this is, 
this is, uh, this is nervous making. And I worry also about some of our adversaries and other nasty people around the world who want to do something that would be disruptive while we are in this situation of this handover. Now, maybe somebody else has got a silver I, bullet. I, I, there aren't any silver bullets, but, but to give credit where credit is due, I, this is <coughs> as good a transition as I've seen at this stage. Uh, uh, maybe uh, Reagan would be equivalent because they were well prepared. It helps to know you're going to win because you can do your planning way in advance, and Obama's been doing that for at least yeah. several months, and that's good. Secondly, it helps to know somebody that's really good that's going to be your chief of staff. He's done that, too, mm -hmm. that is a centrist in his own party. Rahm Emanuel is a terrifically talented person who is DLC type and, 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 and very talented, and that's, that's important. And I think there's a, there's a third factor right now I think most people in this country are seriously worried, worried, and I don't think that has anything to do with party. I think most of us are doing some serious praying that Obama is successful. And that means we're going to do a lot to, to whatever we can to avoid getting into the partisan kind of garbage that uh, so afflicts this town in campaigns. That's important. If he will bring in people that do what Ann said, uh, which is to trust your top sergeants. You know, for those of us that served in the, in the services, you come out of, you know, officer's candidate school as an ensign, you know very quickly you don't know anything. You've got a chief petty officer, a top sergeant, and you better listen. Uh, I did the same thing. I, I, I took all my SERs out to uh, Leesburg at the IBM Center, and we spent four days together crafting a new mission statement for the department. I said, I want to tell you guys, I have been in the trade field. This is new to me, and I need you to help me put together a new mission statement. We changed the whole atmosphere of that place because they knew that I had confidence in them. These are good people in government. They're very good people. Take advantage of that. What, what did you do, Ann? To put, go ahead. I, I think the other thing, I'm, it's not that you have to wait for all of your people to get confirmed. So if you get... Most of the cabinet will be confirmed, and I would say this cabinet will be confirmed by probably the time just after he takes office. Most of them, I think, will be confirmed by the 1st of February. So the cabinet will be there. What they need to do is get a good chief of staff who doesn't need to be confirmed and some good lieutenants around them that can help run some of the areas that aren't confirmation positions. So... You can bring in somebody who's a deputy undersecretary while your undersecretary is, is still going for mm -hmm. confirmation, and they can help you run those areas. And that's really what you have to do. The other thing I did was I was missing a real kind of person that could pull together because I had animal disease problems when I first came in. And I had just two years before been the Secretary of Agriculture in California. I brought in on a temporary basis with permission from the state of California the state veterinarian who I very much trusted and was very well respected around the U.S. Mm -hmm. to work on these issues until I got the right people in place. So I actually imported a person temporarily. Temporarily. How long? Remember? How long were they? They were two or three matter, months. matter of months. Steve, can I come back and ask you, um, just to back on your chart, your demographics here, yeah. how important you think it is for Barack Obama to have a cabinet that looks like America? Uh, I think it's increasingly important. In other words, if you looked at these charts starting 
uh, with, with Eisenhower, Kennedy, and so forth. It, totally white, totally male. Uh, and then you watch women getting there slowly, 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 uh, African Americans, others. And then it bursts forward in the last two administrations, Clinton uh, and George W. Bush, so that you reach a point now that both of them had initial cabinets in which I think less than half were white European, uh, were not white European males uh, of descent. White, you know, they, they could be uh, white but not European and so forth. And it was a very interesting group. Now, the problem there is a very simple one. It's very easy to fill these some of these jobs way out in the outer cabinet uh, and say, hey, I've accomplished this. Uh, and are they really, how much is that, that a token appointment when you're already given uh, your key jobs, which of course we all know, the inner cabinet being treasury, state, uh, justice, uh, Defense. 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 Yeah. So it's got to, that has to apply to the central part of the cabinet well. It can't just be the ones out on the fringe. Then there's something else you can do. Uh, and in a funny way, uh, Bill mentioned it because President Reagan, President elect Reagan, didn't know that the trade rep was actually in the cabinet. But it's a cabinet appointment by congressional. Uh, but you can put other people in the cabinet. You can add on to your cabinet. The table right. will fit a few more people, not too many, but you can still get a few more. And you can accomplish some of this diversity by adding on. Uh, very simple. So why uh, has the UN ambassador popped up in presidential mm -hmm. cabinets many times? UN ambassador actually, I think, reports to an assistant secretary of state. It's not, but nevertheless. Uh, repeatedly, we've had a UN ambassador, whether it was Madeleine Albright or Andy Young or so forth and so on, uh, who have been in a president's cabinet. So you can make adjustments uh, that at least show symbolically that you care about the question of diversity. And I think this, this president will be expected to have a cabinet that looks more like America. Uh, that's really how he won this election, if you look at it. And I think it's, it's been the last, as you point out, last couple of administrations have, have looked more like that. Mm -hmm. And I just think this is a natural. Now, there are plenty of competent people who can fit all the boxes that we've been talking about here of different kinds of experience and levels of trust and whatever, who, who are uh, not just uh, white males, who are very mm -hmm. different. And I, and I think he's got to do that. I really do. Bill Brock, but but said, keep yeah. it to yourself. In other words, the problem that, that Bill Clinton got into was he announced <laughs> that a woman was going to be yeah. The, yeah. the attorney general. Hey, you know, that, yeah. that is painting yourself into a corner yeah. at this point. He fails on the first. He fails on the second. When he finally gets the third. It's now March, and he's really slowed down the process. You can keep this to yourself. Well, then. you just do it. Yeah. That's what you do. You don't talk about it beforehand. You just do it. You, you, you said that often corporate chieftains aren't you know, the, the people to put in there because they're expected to, they have a, they expect to be able to fire somebody and get something done or whatever it is. Uh, you've taken a couple of shots at the Congress. How about the senators and congressional members leading these gigantic organizations? Well, since I was one of those. I know. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was a great preparation. Um, there are advantages, frankly, in coming out of the Congress because uh, so much of what you're trying to do is is uh, adjust adjust your legislative uh, program to your to your real program. 
I mean, you, you've got to change the law. You've got to change regulations. And being able to go to somebody who's the chairman of the committee that you know personally and say, okay, John, uh, let's do this. I, I, I remember I was testifying uh, before Bill Proxmire's commission, committee, and uh, I have no idea what the subject matter was, but he went on and on and on and was just chopping on me, and I started laughing. And he said, what are you laughing at? And I said, Bill Proxmire, I know you. You're a, part, uh, you're a political butterfly. You're just going to dance around this issue until you're ready to, to get to it. And he looked at me, and he got flushed, and then he started laughing, and then we moved forward. <laughs> Having the ability to, to know these people uh, and work with them is really uh, very helpful. A, a CEO rarely has anything close to that experience. They're used to dealing with other CEOs. They're used to going to these fancy places with the fancy staff. They're not used to having to work with other people. In the cabinet, we have inter-cabinet relationships that are really important. Uh, working with the Congress is terrifically important. Working with your staff is terrifically important. You can't just say, so it's do more this. important. It's more, what you're saying is it's more important to be a politician than it is to be an executive. Well, a, a politician in the nicest, broadest sense of the word. You, you, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Uh, I think you called them turkeys a minute ago. So. <laughs> well, there are a few. But, and, and, and they abuse the process. But most members of Congress are really good, caring people. Both parties, uh, they want to do, do good. They want to do right for the country. They're there because they care about issues. They care about their constituents. Take advantage of that. Draw on that resource and, and bring them into the process. You win when you do that. You get more done. And then bring a deputy if you have someone uh -huh. like that who really doesn't know how to manage, and a lot of folks on the Hill don't know how to manage, That's then bring true. in a deputy who does know how to manage. And sometimes yeah. that can be a very good combination. Yeah. One of the, exactly. I'm sorry. Go ahead. The, the, the place I would recommend Barack Obama to, to, to look, nobody's mentioned it yet, is a university or a college president. Why? Because look at all of the various constituencies that person has without really the authority to do anything about it. He's got the students, he's got the administrators, he's got the alumni. Uh, if, it's state, if it's a public college, he has the state legislatures. You know, just tick off all of the groups that he, has to, he or she has to get to work together. And that always sounded to me very much like a cabinet officer. I mean, I thought Donna Shalala, for example, who had been president of several yeah. Uh, universities before she got here with HHS really understood uh, that that principle. Well, and the two most interesting, I mean, you talk about corporate chieftains, of course, the two most iconic corporate bosses were both at the Pentagon, Donald Rumsfeld and, 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 and Robert McNamara, who were big CEOs who came in and pounded their fist and they had their charts and their graphs and their metrics for success. <laughs> and... Um, Rumsfeld was also from the Congress. <laughs> well, true enough, true enough, true enough. But but acted like a, a CEO when he was trying to run the Pentagon. I would suggest something that uh, you may or may not agree with. But today's CEOs are getting to be. I'm talking about generationally different. Are, are getting to be a different breed anyway, because the the environment in which they are in, 
are operating is far more complex with far more constituencies than it ever used to be. And so the command and control CEOs are, uh, are, are going, they're gone. And it's, a, it's a far more management uh, style collaborative process today. So it's possible that there would be someone who would, who would fit just what we're talking about, who, who could deal with this complexity of environment. A little more to that, the old-fashioned ones that, that Bill and I think of when we think about CEOs, yeah. uh, were private people. They could not deal with the exposure, right. the transparency <laughs> exactly. of the system. Right. I think, Barbara, you're, you're, you, you know it well, and I think you're, you're right, just from the, the blossoming of the business press and all of that, mm -hmm. or, or yeah. suddenly the celebrities of whether it's a Bill Gates or, or what mm -hmm. have you, that they are a group that probably is more aware of being uh, of being exposed, if you will. I'd like to come down in a couple minutes to questions. I think there's a, who's got the microphone. So if you if you have a question, raise your hand. We'll bring a mic around to you. But I want to put you on the spot a little bit for some specifics. <clears throat> you were agriculture secretary. What is needed in Barack Obama's agriculture secretary? Yeah. Got any people you would like to recommend? <laughs> I've looked at his list. And. Well, I think he's got some people that um, that could come in there and, and understand the issues. Again, the breadth of the department is not well okay, understood. What are the names you like the most? Well, I'm not going to speculate on who's going to be the... You can I, ask. Okay, so <laughs> one of the names that's come out is uh, Bill Sack, who's the governor of Iowa. They say he owes the governor of Iowa. He comes from, obviously, one of the biggest ag states, so many people think he may have the inside track. I have no knowledge of whether or not he does or not. All I do is read the press. But that's certainly one of the names that's being bandied around for the Secretary of Agriculture. What do you think, uh, Bill Brock? Um, I was accused of trying to take over the Department of Education when I was at Labor. Uh, I still think it's the right thing to do. <laughs> they weren't real good. Um, but but the, no, no I'm, I'm, I'm not being critical. I'm making a point. There can be no higher priority for this government, any government, any party, uh, beyond the security of the country than the human development of its people. And we do a lousy job in this country of that. The Department of Labor needs somebody that will focus on working with education to develop the talent base of people coming out of a K-12 education, working with higher education to improve the quality of that process, working with the existing workforce. Most of the people that are going to be around working in this country are already in the workforce. Well, so, so you think this should we, be an educator? You think this should I, be a labor I, leader? You think this should I, be I a, think they have to take into consideration that we are in a global economy we're not beginning to prepare our kids or our workers to participate in a world in which you can transfer trillions of dollars around the world in nanoseconds, where competition is coming at high skill levels, not just manual labor anymore. And that requires that we take a different approach to our workforce. And that means we gotta give them a chance to go back to school, to get retrained, I think the average kid coming out of this school or any other is going to have at least three careers in your working life. Okay, are you prepared for that? Uh, not in a lot of schools. And our workers who came out of a different uh, set of uh, educational experiences aren't even begin. We don't even begin to have them prepared. So let's rethink 
what it is we're about as a country. Let's give them the tools to be productive. Otherwise, this standard of living ours, which is sagging now, particularly in middle income, is going to get worse. And that's insane for a country that is based on a, so, a social contract so, between so, the people and government. So while I'm being a jerk here, do uh, you have anybody you'd like to put forth? Any names you'd like to mention? No. <laughs> <laughs> Commerce. Um, the mission of that department has to do with fostering economic well-being and technological advancement. And I think it needs somebody who really understands how business works in this country. And not just big business, all kinds of business, medium-sized business and entrepreneurial business. And, and in particular, I would underscore that. That's one of the, the key things. We have got to, to keep innovating in all kinds of ways in this country, not just technology, but new ways of doing things, if we are going to continue to be an economic leader in this global economy. It's absolutely crucial. That department also, though, I have to tell you, is a conglomerate, uh, maybe even more of a conglomerate in some ways than agriculture, because the, the biggest piece of it is, has to do is NOAA, it's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which has some environmental stuff. The Weather Bureau is in there. The Marine Fisheries Service is in there. Uh, Commerce Department uh, secretaries get lobbied more about fish than almost anything else because there's a huge amount of, of power as to who, who sits in these councils uh, that determine what gets fished and what doesn't get fished in our coastal waters. So I think that whoever the, the, that secretary is, if, if that person doesn't have some managerial uh, talent to, to pull these disparate pieces of that, that entity together, then it really needs a strong deputy who can do it. But fundamentally, right now, we have got to work at, at getting our exports up, uh, creating more and more innovation, and, and that person has got to really understand that at a gut level, I believe. I'd like to raise a question. Okay, this, we now know the politics uh, of our three secretaries. Barack Obama has made a lot of comment in the course of the campaign about bipartisanship, the sense of bringing in uh, people from the other party. Uh, on the other hand, uh, he won a huge mandate uh, and brought in a large Democratic Congress. Uh, what's your feeling about how far and what ways you go, if you're President Barack Obama, in reaching out to Republicans? Well, he's already said, hasn't he, that he's going to have Republicans in the cabinet. I feel as though he's, or, or somebody's talked about two. Somewhere. Well, if he keeps uh, Secretary one. Gates for a time, All right. that's sort of a uh, basic. That's one of the the uh, the big four. I think he would be wise to do that. Um, I think it always presents a little bit of an issue, however, whether wh whoever that is really ends up being trusted by the, the White House establishment and the, the other, the other um, people that, that he's got in the cabinet. But it, it probably would be wise at, at this point. I hope, I, I hope, as someone said earlier, that we stop the, the, this bipartisan uh, bickering that has been going on. We have too much at stake right now. Um, we'll see. I guess I would hope he, he, does, he, he does that. But really, the, the, he's got to send the message to Capitol Hill as well, somehow. 
And, uh, I don't know whether that's possible to to get the the uh, the Congress to behave in a different fashion. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe and, Bill knows. And Veterman, what do you think about that? The bipartisanship and how how bipartisan he should be because he's talked about it, obviously. Well, I think that both presidential candidates this time went way beyond what we've heard in prior campaigns on talking about having bipartisan cabinets, and I think that creates a pretty high expectation. They're talking about I will put. Republicans with an S, not a single one. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen in the last couple of administrations there was kind of the token. Mm -hmm. But I don't think either of the candidates, both Obama and McCain, talked about having truly bipartisan administrations and cabinets. And I think to live up to that promise is going to really, you're going to have to really think seriously about putting in some Republicans. I certainly think there's people that have been strongly in the president-elect's camp that are Republicans, people like Senator Chuck Hagel, people like Colin Powell, uh, who came out very openly. And I think um, it, it isn't that impossible. Of course, there's been talk about Gates staying on his defense, although that would be the position, the only position I could see Colin Powell going into as well. Um, really? Well, he's <laughs> been state. I, I, um, I've had a standing of a bet with uh, a lot of my Republican friends that he puts at least three Republicans in the candidates. I mean, in the, in the cabinet. Three, three. You think he'll I have three? I would, I would, bet, I would bet on three so. still. Uh, by the way, I think Gates is not a Republican. I think he's an independent. But, but oh, lay, lay that aside. He's associated with the administration. Right. So almost the same thing. But you know, McCain's speech election night was magnificent. So was Obama's. Those two set a tone that was terrific. One of the things that impressed me the most about Obama was a two or three full-page story on him and his beginning in politics and how he's come through the process uh, in the Washington Post. And a piece of that story was uh, when he came to the Illinois legislature, uh, his problem was with the African-American leadership who didn't like this hot shot coming in there. So he went to the good old boys from South Illinois and said, can I start playing in your poker club? Uh, this is a smart guy. Uh, and, and that's a pretty good example of how I think he's going to uh, play the game. He, he, he knows that this is a centrist country. Uh, he's not going to make Bill Clinton's mistake. I really, I, I feel pretty excited about where he what can go. What do you go. think the role of, of the president-elect should be during the transition process? It's actually very interesting because he's got to build his team. He's also a sitting senator. They're going to have a lame duck session. Who knows what else is going to take place? He today. Oh, he did? He, I missed that. I've yeah. been in meetings all day. Okay. He was. <laughs> he was. Well, he's got a hands-on. I mean, because yeah. the cabinet really is uh, his front line. He has got to know these people. He's got to be comfortable with them. Uh, you know, and, and he's got to do something that too many of our presidents don't do. Uh, Wayne Gretzky uh, used to talk about the fact that you don't go where the puck is, you go where it's going to be. Obama is smart enough to realize, I think, and I pray, to realize that the issues we're going to be dealing with a couple of years from now are not the issues we're talking about in the campaign. He needs some people who have that degree of, of, of breadth and, and foresight. And that's something that he personally has to evaluate and measure, I think. 
Let's go to the floor and see if there are some questions there. And if there are, we'd like to <coughs> hear from you. And if not, I'm going to turn. There we go, in the back. I read recently. Can you hear me okay, Vern? Yes. I read recently that uh, certain members, political appointees from the Department of Homeland Security, will not be required to resign uh, upon inauguration. I just wanted to know what your insights are on that. What do you know, Steve? I don't know. Anybody? I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, there's a lot of people that are put in for their technical competence, and there may be something going on with the transition teams where there is negotiation on, on things like Homeland Security. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Is there a capacity for people who've gone in like that, whether at Homeland Security or elsewhere, to be carried over? And is that a subject of negotiation? Does there have to be an agreement? How, how does that actually work? They're, they usually leave one person in for a period of time as a holdover, at least. I mean, there may be more. It just depends on what the administration negotiates, how they want to do it. Um, but um, there will be a team of people that probably go in fairly soon. There's office space set aside in each department now, probably. But I think in Homeland Security, it wouldn't be um, unlikely that they would have negotiated. Yeah, there's, a, there's a pretty strong group of, of people in both parties that are pushing <coughs> to, to not make changes in Homeland Security for the simple mm. reason this is a humongous, relatively new department that still hadn't gotten its act together, and changing horses at this stage, uh, I think most people that they're, they're pay attention to Homeland Security would worry a lot about shifting gears at this point. And so my bet is that he will make very few changes there, pretty dramatic changes elsewhere. Okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. I've heard the same thing. We have another, I saw, there we go. In your experience, do you think that deputy secretaries generally end up making good secretaries if they get appointed to, or is it a different skill set? Do deputy secretaries make good secretaries at the end, or is it a different skill set? Well, you're one. <laughs> uh, I'm one that happens to have done it. Um, Brilliantly, right? Well, I don't know about that. I also had the benefit, I, I must say, of I, I came up from working in the lower levels of the department and then, you know, through various levels and ended up as deputy secretary at the end of the first Bush administration. I then went to um, be secretary of agriculture in California, which gave me sort of the actual running of the department. So I was in a bit of a different position. But there's been, I think, several people who have served as deputy secretaries that have ultimately taken over, uh, many with, with much success. I don't think you can make one judgment on whether or not that's true or false. I agree. Mm. I, agree. I, you know, I, I was thinking about it because it was such an interesting question, and I, I don't know the answer. Other than it's a time thing. Uh, the deputy, take, assuming he, he or she takes over, is taking over at a different phase. In other words, the, the secretary comes in, and there's a great <coughs> burst of energy that has to do with, with policy initiative, with policy creation. That secretary person possibly leaves, then the deputy has to either effectuate it through Congress or organize it in the department. So uh, the one who comes in second, uh, and, and by the way, comment on that, and if that's not if that's not right, uh, is using somewhat different skills. The second one as opposed to the first mm -hmm. one. Yeah, I think it totally depends on the personalities. Mm -hmm. You know, when I came in, 
When I was actually promoted up to be deputy secretary in the department, I've been there for some time, and um, the secretary who selected me for that had, was coming in from the Congress, Ed Madigan, mm -hmm. and he liked the idea of having someone who'd been in the department right. and who had been working on the trade issues because that was not his strength. So he was bringing the balance in. And I think it's just a matter of the circumstances at the time and, mm -hmm. and the personalities. I don't think you can really make generalizations on this. Right. You got another question here in the back. Yes. I was wondering if you could discuss the pros and cons of having a famous big name as a cabinet secretary, like a, say a John Kerry or a Hillary Clinton. What are the advantages and disadvantages of having that strong personality well, at the very top? Very interesting question. question. Yeah. yeah, very interesting question. Bill Brock, you want to start? I'm not sure that I can make a, a generalized statement. I, I think... Uh, the problem that they would have is that the expectations would be beyond their capacity to perform uh, because they have very strong reputations. They're expected to, to do so much more than anybody else in the cabinet. The focus of the press would be very intense on them. And the press can be very judgmental. Uh, they will look for minor errors of judgment or whatever. So I think, I think it, in, in some ways it's harder for them uh, coming in with, with that much of a reputation. Doesn't mean they can't do it, but it is it is challenging for them. Also, sometimes people wonder whether whether who, whoever it is is really running for something else yeah. uh, shortly or down the, down the line. In, in other words, is that person carrying out whose agenda? Uh, the president's or well, It must make it much more own. difficult to do the job because I can just tell you from yeah. a press point of view yeah. and where the cameras go, you know, when sure. Colin Powell went over to state, yeah. every trip he went on, everybody wanted to be there because you didn't know yeah, whether you were hanging around the yeah. Secretary of State or next president or a rock star, sometimes yeah. both, yeah. Uh, as opposed to having some degree of room, a little breathing room to sound people out and, and make the rounds a little bit. Yeah, exactly Barbara's right. question, you know, it's like there was an uh, emperor of, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and somebody said to, about one of his assistants, he's a patriot. And he said, but is he a patriot for me? <laughs> right. that's, yeah, that's Who's sort agenda? of thing. Who's agenda? Exactly. Who's agenda? But, but yeah. of course, you could say, hey, good question to have asked uh, Abraham Lincoln. If, no, if, if you've read Doris Kearns, Kearns' book. I mean, wow, what a, what a molding when he picked staff, uh, a cabinet, all of whom uh, thought of themselves as much greater uh, people than he was. And but, all of them opposed him. Everyone. But what a master he was, yeah. uh, whether that's a managerial skill or what kind of a skill that was. He was a master at getting those people to pull in the same direction as he wanted them to go. Amazing. If you all haven't read Team of Rivals, which is the book they're talking about, mm -hmm. it, uh, really is. it is an unbelievable, great story about how to, how to govern. I, it actually, it takes me to my next quote that I want to pull from Hess's book here, okay. where he's got these wonderful little performance evaluations for the president of various <laughs> cabinet secretaries and decision as to whether to hire, rehire, or fire. And he's got one here as if it were being written about the Secretary of the Treasury, then Paul O'Neill. It says, almost from the beginning, Secretary O'Neill has committed a series of indiscretions, such as telling the Wall Street Journal the Wall Street professionals are, quote, people who sit in front of a flickering green screen and are not the sort of people you'd want to help you think about complex questions. <laughs> you may have been on to something there. The Los Angeles Times has characterized him as, quote, a man who has elevated candor to a martial art. <laughs> Others have called him refreshingly candid. How much running room 
does a, does a cabinet secretary, should a cabinet secretary have to speak his or her mind to the public or within, within the administration himself? Because you're supposed to be the loyal soldier, but you're also supposed to represent reality. <laughs> that was a little too much reality, I would say. <laughs> I, I, I know Paul O'Neill. I've, I've known him in the Nixon era. Liked him a lot. He was at OMB. He was very helpful with some of the stuff I was was trying to um, to do. Um, he went on to become a CEO. This is going to be <laughs> the, the flip side of my earlier CEO comment. I think um, I think he was an unusual person. Uh, is an unusual person, and maybe wasn't fit for that job. He's an out of the box kind of a thinker and endure in a way, and he he just brought all of that with him. And somebody else was the CEO. Barack said. Obama has said he wants unvarnished, you know, <laughs> advice, and that's what supposedly Biden's going to give him. Is that a is that a good thing? <laughs> unvarnished. Mean, is, that, is that is that real? <laughs> well, I think one of the things that tends to happen when you're president or in high levels in, in the administration is that you don't want yes people around you all the time. You want people to give you solid feedback that gives you the true pros and cons of any issue. And if you say something and people take that as your position rather than saying, well, let's look at the pros and cons. I mean, I think most people really want... Did your boss want you to be outspoken? Uh, I think we were all encouraged to... But there's a difference between being outspoken independently in the press, as, as the, right. the thing you were just reading, and being able to speak and have input in cabinet meetings or, or actually the, the smaller sessions around an issue, which usually weren't cabinet meetings, at least in this last this administration. But you would sit around the table and all express your views. But what came out, you didn't go. Did you need, did you need <clears throat> the President of the United States or somebody in charge to set that bar? It depended on the issue. I mean, was you a know that. Issue I, I, I mean, a reasonable person knows. To, to me, what you don't say outside, and uh, if you really disagree and, and you're sitting in a cabinet job very strongly with a decision, and you really can't do it, then you should get out. You shouldn't go and, and talk about it publicly. Sure I mean, that's, that's correct. You, you are serving at the pleasure of the president, and you're a public servant, and you're not supposed to be, uh, if you disagree, get out. If, if you don't, go along, but you don't speak publicly uh, about those sorts of disagreements. I, I just think that that's a basic rule of, of good comportment. You, you, you can't undercut the President of the United States. Right. I mean, that, that's insane. You, 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 what kind of chaos would you have if cabinet people were going out, and I don't agree with this, you know. It's been known to happen. Uh, I know, yeah, but and they ought to be fired the day it happens. Because right. your job, <laughs> let's, let's make, let's begin with a predicate. The predicate is that a good president has an agenda that everybody understands. When we were, those of us that were in Reagan's cabinet knew very well what the parameters were, what our primary goals were, and how each of us were, would fit into that. The process by which we would express disagreement, we, I was chairman of one subcommittee, others were chairing their group. We had cabinet councils where if where there were disagreements between cabinet members, you'd fight it out. If you couldn't resolve the difference, you would buck it up to the full cabinet where Reagan would make the decision. 
But he very much wanted to hear a full-bore argument. He wanted both sides presented, and then, and then he would make the call. I, I happen to think that's a terrific way of, of, of doing it, but, but the truth is that, that it, if somebody left that room and went out and said, I don't really agree, even if they're talking sub rosa to somebody in the press, I think they ought to be gone. Right. Any other questions from the floor? If not, I'm going to turn one, one last one right here up at the front row. Make this quick and then some summary remarks, and we'll let everybody get on their way in the rain or whatever it's doing outside. Bye, book. Bye, book. Does the fact does the fact that uh, Joe Biden comes in with such knowledge of foreign policy and it's emphasized that he wants to go and and talk to people and and be engaged in foreign policy affect the pick for Secretary of State and the personality that that Secretary of State has? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> How? How? Well, uh, the Secretary of State is the lead on those issues. And any good Secretary of State is going to run into some problems if Biden is out uh, with his own agenda. Mm -hmm. The president has got to make the decision. Who has, who's, who's his lead on this issue? It's going to be hard to get a Secretary of State uh, unless he or she believes they have the lead. And mm -hmm. I think there's a challenge. I think it's a terrific question. But in, this is a sort of a unique situation. I think the, Obama has a, a, a tough decision to make, but I think he has to make it. So let me conclude by going around the horn here and asking each of you what your, uh, in, in consideration of a transition process that leads to the best and most functional cabinet that one can imagine, given the extreme challenge that the United States of America faces right now. What is your principal piece of advice to the president and now to his chief of staff, whom we know, who are putting this puzzle together? Get the very best people, competence-wise, that you can, who understand your agenda and who, who, whom you trust to do what you want them to do and, and make it look like America. Okay. Go for it, Mr. President. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Bill Brock. Um, my advice would be to limit your agenda. Uh, you made so many promises in the campaign, and everybody's going to be saying, I want mine. But the truth is that uh, you can't do it all, and you can't do it all quickly. Pick the two or three at most really important fundamental things that will uh, let the majority of Americans say, this person has really got his hand on the throttle, and I trust him. Or the steering wheel may be the better metaphor. But don't be everything to everybody. Limit your goals, limit your programs, and then go health a letter to make it happen. And tell the Congress, uh, do it or get off the pot. You know, we got to move. <laughs> and Venom. Well, <clears throat> I would agree with Barbara that um, in picking the cabinet, it's, I think, particularly at this juncture in the country and in the world for that matter, um, we have to, he has to really look for competence in his cabinet picks because we are in a time of financial crisis. People are hurting. People are, have such high expectations. One of the things I think is very important to recognize, and because I have actually been traveling internationally so much of this year during the campaign, 
um, is how much the world is watching what the United States is doing. And sometimes, as I've watched television in my hotel rooms halfway across the world, I've been embarrassed for the United States as we saw our bickering and our negative campaigning, you know, splashed across TV screens all around the world, not just in our country, but around the world. And I wonder, what do people, what kind of example are we setting for the world? And yet, the night that the election results came in, with the strong speeches by both candidates, mm -hmm. I think we set a real beacon for what democracy is all about. Mm -hmm. But I think that the president has to keep in mind that in particular, the world watched this election with such interest and has such high expectations for him to really put the United States into a particular position in the world that, that he is truly a world leader. You watch what hap has happened in Africa. I was with the Indonesian ambassador just this week, and he said he has roots in Indonesia. I mean, people all over the world are taking pride in the president of the United States, and I truly think it's important for him to recognize that he's a global president. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Good thought. Yeah. Certainly is the case. Steve Hess, your book, What Do We Do Now? What does he do now? Well, I'm, uh, I'm not going to... I'm going to let us end in that regard. That what I thought was a quite wonderful statement, and say, and only give a, a commercial for for the uh, for for us because we have another one coming up. Just to tell you, this is a second of five, and boy, if they're all of the quality of the first two, this is wonderful. Uh, the, the next one is on December first, which is a Monday, and it's media relations, and it's the same principle of having only people who have been there. We've got uh, three president, former presidential press secretaries plus one who was a director of communications, four, four different administrations, very, and particularly in the School of Media and Public Affairs. I hope we get uh, uh, some folks out to, uh, to, for another very interesting evening. But, but again, I, I join with, with Frank in thanking our three former cabinet officers who've been have given so much to, to the country and, of course, tonight to us. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.